Jesus is my life. Would you remain standing as we open up God's word together? We are in Matthew chapter 5. It's page 810 in your pew Bible. So if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, take the one in front of you in the pew there. Turn to page 810. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. This is the word of our Lord. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray, because we need it. Father, we recognize this is your word. We as a church have confessed together that your word is over us. And so we submit to what you've told us in your word, though we don't understand it. Lord, pray this morning, Father, that as we look to your word, you would give us understanding. That is as short as what Jesus has told us here, and as incomplete as it seems, we would, we would come into this with hearts that are open and trusting in our Savior above all else and willing to listen to what He has given us. Father, I pray that, that my tone this morning would be soft that I would be compassionate and that people would not hear hardness in me but would hear as I proclaim your word the grace that you give instead and the mercy that you've shown us we ask this in Jesus name Amen well, one of our temptations when we look to Christ's instruction for us is to sometimes distance ourselves from it, treat it as, a, as an academic exercise, as if Christianity were just an idea or a, a system of thought or maybe even like, a, like an identity to defend or a tribe that we belong to. in the face of lots of other worldviews and lots of other tribes in America, we can tend to say, well, Christianity is the one that we speak for. It's not what this is, is it? Christianity isn't just a philosophy. It's a whole life way of living and thinking and worshiping, responding to our Creator. When we are drawn into Christ's kingdom, this kingdom that Jesus has been telling us about, 
in Matthew. When we are drawn into that kingdom, we have to realize that something very different has happened to us. And that new reality demands a new approach to absolutely everything. So take, for instance, this this instruction that Jesus gives us about divorce. These two short verses. We cannot read this and not come at it with something at stake, can we? If you have, if you've ever been touched by divorce, I want to do something we don't normally do. I want you to raise your hands, and I don't mean uh, that you've been divorced only. If your parents have been divorced, or if any of your kids have been divorced, or any of your close friends have been divorced, or you've married someone who has been divorced, or if you have been divorced, just raise your hands. This this is not a subject that we come to lightly, is it? Most everybody in this room has seen and felt firsthand the devastation of a broken marriage. So this isn't theory. This is not an academic exercise for us. Jesus is talking about real life stuff with real consequences and real weight. His kingdom has invaded reality as we know it. And he's showing us how extensive that kingdom goes into our lives. The way it works its way into the brokenness of our lives. And at the same time, when he brings up this subject of divorce, it's not, it's not so much to, to teach extensively about it, is it? It's just two verses. This isn't an exposition on divorce. It's just an illustration for Jesus. An illustration that he uses because he knows it has affected many of the people that are listening to him. Think again, if you will, about the context that we read this passage in. He's teaching disciples what life in the kingdom is like, in his new kingdom. He's talked about what kingdom citizens are like in the Beatitudes, and then he's told us that those who are citizens of this kingdom, this coming kingdom, have a, a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. And that was a radical statement. We talked about that several weeks ago. It would have been truly shocking to anybody who's listening to him. And then he begins to show people how that statement is true. The righteousness of the Pharisees is just an external righteousness. It's it's a man-made form of righteousness that comes from following a human understanding of God's law. Think about how he talked about anger and murder. The old standard of righteousness was to avoid murder. But Christ's standard of righteousness was to have a heart that is so made new by the Spirit that it doesn't even respond in anger to anything. Last week, we saw that the old standard of sexual purity was avoiding adultery. But then Jesus said, no, true righteousness, Christ's righteousness, goes beyond avoiding just these external sins. Christ's righteousness goes all the way to the heart and it comes back out. Sexual purity isn't just in what we do, it's in what we think about. It's in how we look at others. Christ's righteousness begins on the inside. 
And so as Jesus turns to the issue of divorce, he's doing the same thing. He's not changing the subject here and going in a totally different direction. He's talking about the community standard of righteousness, the the religious standard that was culturally understood and acceptable, and he's comparing that to the true standard of righteousness, his standard, God's standard. So when it came to divorce, the external standard or the Pharisee's standard of righteousness, righteousness was to be sure and give your wife a certificate of divorce when you send her away. We see that in verse 31 of our text. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That was sort of the standard. This comes from Deuteronomy. So if you, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Deuteronomy, it's at the beginning of the Bible in the first half. If you don't, it'll be up here on the screen. Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'm going to read it because it so clearly is what Jesus is drawing from. Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance thankful for the New Testament (laughs) but this is God's word it's the law written by Moses led along by the Holy Spirit Moses' point is that once a man let's call him Brad divorces his wife let's say her name is Jennifer once Brad divorces Jennifer to marry Angelina Brad can't then divorce Angelina and go back to Jennifer that's the point I don't know why you're laughing (laughs) only in Hollywood Moses not only in Hollywood actually (laughs) Moses says that that'd be an abomination if that were to happen The, the abomination isn't divorce itself It's not even that this poor woman is getting passed around like a used truck. The the abomination is the thought that a man would be with a defiled woman. A woman that he has divorced and given permission to be with other men. That part was understood, I think, in Jesus' day. What wasn't so clear was when a divorce was permissible in the first place. That's the issue folks love to debate. Look closely again at verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24. What are the reasons given for a husband to divorce his wife? Well, she, she loses favor because he has found some indecency in her. What in the world does that mean? He's found some indecency in her. There were two schools of thought in Judaism. All right, Some Jews thought some indecency could be interpreted as nearly anything. Actual writings, I'm not making this stuff up, from from this group of teachers say that some indecency in her could be that she's a bad cook, or she burned a meal, or she uses too much salt when she cooks. 
or her mother is annoying or the husband doesn't find her attractive anymore basically anything the man doesn't like about her is grounds for a divorce according to this school of thought and gets to define the indecency it's not too difficult or not too different from the way things are today is it and we laugh about the cooking part but things haven't changed much if marriage is about my happiness and my fulfillment and my pleasure and if this other person isn't meeting what I believe I need for fulfillment and happiness and pleasure then I can leave them no questions asked so long as I do the right legal stuff give them fair notice get the child support in order the alimony in order file the right paperwork and so on Now, the other school of thought in Judaism interpreted that word indecency as some adulterous act that the woman had committed. Maybe maybe the husband finds out she wasn't a virgin when he married her. Maybe she committed adultery while they were married. Indecency in this school of thought was related to her sexual purity and not so much her personality or her appearance or her cooking. So the raging debate in the first century AD was not whether divorce should exist at all. Not how can I love my wife or my husband more sacrificially. But what did Moses mean by indecent? Right? What, what are we looking for when we zero in on that question? We're looking for a loophole. We, we want to find a loophole in the law. How can I get out of this marriage that no longer meets my needs and still be righteous? How can I get rid of this person who I've decided I don't like anymore and not feel guilty about getting rid of them? You ever catch yourself doing this? Maybe not about marriage. How close can I get to the edge and not fall off? What can I get away with is the question. It's the heart of the matter here. How far can I go with my girlfriend before what we're doing is considered immoral? How much truth can I leave out of this statement before what I'm doing is considered lying? How much can I fudge on my tax returns before I'm audited and have to explain things? How passive-aggressive can I be with this person before it is considered disrespectful? Like we're tricking God. Like we're going to get into his presence based on a technicality. Ah, see, God, that's where you're wrong. You didn't say I shouldn't divorce. You said if I did divorce, then it had to be for the right reason and I had to write, file the right paperwork. Well, here's, here's my proof. Here, here's my right reason. Here's the paperwork. I signed it at the bottom. I initialed in the right places. I think you'll find I've represented you well checking all the boxes you should be thanking me for my service to you not questioning me like God works at the DMV or something Jesus' whole point here is that's not what God is like that's not what the kingdom of heaven is like that's what the world is like God's not looking for your technicalities He's not looking for the right paperwork or whatever man-made stuff you can come up with to make you feel good about yourself. 
He's not looking for what makes you ever so slightly more righteous than the person next to you. He's looking at your heart. And a heart that is always looking to justify itself is an impure heart. So in the same way that our anger makes us just as guilty as murderers and our wondering eyes and pornography habits make us just as guilty as adulterers, what Jesus is saying in verse 32 is that our self-seeking reasons for divorce are adulterous. When a man divorces his wife thinking he's doing everything right, he's actually forcing her into adultery is what Jesus is saying. Why? Because when the, when the woman remarries after a divorce, and it's assumed she's going to remarry, then what happens is she's, she's committing adultery. And this instruction goes both ways, okay? Matthew seems to focus only on men, but Jesus is gender inclusive. When you look at his teaching broadly, Mark chapter 10, you'll see the, the same teaching, and it goes to both audiences, So whatever he says to men here in Matthew 5, I believe wholeheartedly that it also applies to women and vice versa. Now the only exception to this, what we see in Jesus' teaching, is when one party commits adultery and then the other party divorces the offending party. In that case, has the one who filed for divorce forced the adulterer into adultery? No. He's saying that the the adultery has already happened. A a lot of times in our haste, we read this as as what we call an exception clause. As if Jesus were teaching that divorce is permissible in the case of adultery. That's not what he's saying. Read it carefully. Look at verse 32 again. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. He's only saying that divorce in these cases doesn't lead to adultery because adultery has already happened. And so I know at this point you're probably thinking, so then, well, Jesus, is, is divorce ever permissible? Is it ever okay? Are there any circumstances where divorce is justified? And I'll be honest, that's how I came to this text. I came to this looking for when when could I tell someone that they were right to get a divorce? But Jesus does not answer that question. If you're looking to Jesus to find out whether or not a marriage should rightly end in divorce, you're not going to find that answer in this passage. That's not his point in our text. His entire point is that we shouldn't be looking for a way out. We really shouldn't be asking the the question to begin with. And I know that's not at all satisfying. It's not satisfying. We could end here and just walk away with this terrible taste in our mouth. Feeling like we need something to wash it down. And there's, there's no water available. But this is not Jesus' last word on divorce. I think you see in your, in your uh, sermon notes there, Matthew 19, he speaks about this again. 
in Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9. This is sort of a follow-up to Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, and it's, it's worth our time to look there. In that passage, some folks came to Jesus and asked him the exact same question that you and I have right now. Are there ever reasons where I can be justified in getting divorced? Well, I, I can tell you ahead of time that you might not be satisfied with his answer here either. But I'll tell you this. In the follow-up teaching, at least we get a bigger picture. What isn't explained for us in Matthew 5 is explained for us in Matthew 19. Okay? So if you will turn in your Bibles to Matthew 19, we'll spend the rest of our time there this morning. Matthew 19, that's page 824 in your pew Bible. And what we will see is more of why Jesus says what he does. Matthew chapter 19, and I really would encourage you to follow along. That way you know it's not just me. This is God's word. Matthew 19, 1. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And fair... <clears throat> And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus points all the way back to creation. And says, you guys are asking the wrong question. The issue isn't to be for us, what are the right grounds for a divorce? The issue is what are the grounds for marriage? What is the origin of marriage? The sacredness of marriage. Why is marriage so important to God? That's what we should be asking. So he takes them to Genesis 2, the very first marriage. The one where God creates a woman for this lonely and incomplete man. And then Jesus shows them two important things about the essence of marriage there in Genesis 2. The first is that marriage is the bringing together of two persons, male and female, into one person. They become a, a one flesh union. They become united together. No longer are the man's concerns only himself. Now his concerns are in caring for his wife. And the second thing Jesus wants us to see about marriage is that it is created by God. The essence of marriage is this mingling of two souls, two becoming one, and the oneness reality is God-ordained. He made it. God did it. That's what marriage is. Jesus says that because of what marriage is, then, something created by God a God-ordained, one-flesh union, the last thing we should be debating is how can we tear it apart and be justified? 
what God has made, we have no right to destroy. That dishonors God. You can't wreck something God made and at the same time be justified before before him in doing it. And the Pharisees hear this and they say, okay, granted. If that's true, then why did Moses command divorce? Look at Matthew 19, 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Gotcha, Jesus. <laughs> now, remember that passage from Deuteronomy 24 we read earlier? That's, that's what they're referring to. They're thinking about that one. It's a reasonable question. And you and I probably have that question. If marriage is so important to God, then wouldn't Moses have made a much bigger deal out of staying married rather than writing about divorce the way that he did? Oh, good question. How does Jesus answer it? Look at verse 8. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Notice how Jesus corrects them. A little subtle correction. Moses never commanded divorce. He allowed for divorce. But from the beginning, from Genesis 2, God created marriage as sacred. It was ordained by him, made wonderful and life-giving by him. From the beginning, marriage united one man and one woman for life, and it was the source of security and joy. All created by God. All for his glory. If you read the Genesis narrative, you see that marriage is the last act of creation. The, the crowning achievement. But that was Genesis 2. What happens in Genesis 3? Sin. At the end of Genesis 2, the man and woman are joined together in marriage. They're naked. They're not ashamed. Adam is singing. Life is good. But as soon as sin comes into the picture in Genesis 3, this new couple becomes separated from one another. And they're both filled with shame. Sin has brought division and strife into the marriage. Worse still, sin separates us from God and it hardens our hearts. So what Jesus is doing is teaching the teachers, the ones who should know this, that when Moses wrote Deuteronomy 24, he was writing after the fall. In a world where sin has turned humanity in on itself, where marriage has become tainted by selfishness and deceit, divorce inevitably becomes a part of that dark reality. Obeying Moses' instruction then isn't so much about how to be righteous as it is about how to avoid disaster. It's like a mom who knows that her, her boys are going to fight. And so she goes into the room and she takes, about, takes all the sharp objects out, all of the blunt objects out. They're going to fight, but at least we can keep them from killing each other. Moses knows there's going to be some divorce in Israel because of the hardness of hearts. It's inevitable. His goal is to keep divorce from being as big a mess as it might be without some orderly laws to restrain it. 
Jesus' response, though, offers a glimmer of hope. This is the turn here. Did you see it? Jesus says that Moses had to write laws about divorce because of hardened hearts. But Jesus is giving a, a new teaching. He's saying, essentially, Moses' time has passed. The laws that govern that old age are not as important now because we don't have to have hard hearts now. Jesus' teaching is for his inaugurated kingdom, the new kingdom. In this new covenant era where we as his people have been born again and given new creation hearts, we don't have to be beholden to the old sin hardened stone hearts that we once had we have the spirit and living by the spirit divorce is not a foregone foregone conclusion the way that it once was living by the spirit we can live in humility and meekness toward one another we can be merciful and pure in heart we can be peacemakers we can forgive one another what Christ brings to the institution of marriage is a fulfillment of the Genesis 2 law of marriage. Jesus shows God's true intent for the institution of marriage. And as the New Testament era unfolds, we find out that Christian marriages are are not only God-ordaining to become one, but that reality of marriage is meant to show the watching world the beauty of the gospel. Christ's never-ending sacrificial love for the church is meant to be reflected in the way that a Christian husband sacrificially loves his wife. The church's respect and admiration of Christ, her head, is meant to be seen in the way a wife trusts and submits to her husband. Not only is this possible in Christ, it is expected. Displaying marriages that aren't characterized by hardened hearts, but instead show the brightness and the beauty and the wonder of of God's design for marriage. This is one of the ways that the church of Christ is to be salt and light to the world around them. In a dark world where, where broken marriages bring pain and sorrow and despair, Christian marriages are meant to be a glimmer of hope. We're to show the world around us what living in response to God's word looks like. Our marriages are meant to glorify God. That's what Jesus wants us to see and work towards. That's the goal. And so when you're working towards as lofty a goal as that, and I know it's a lofty goal, it isn't helpful to be thinking, how can I get out of this? A marathon runner is not helped by knowing all the places along the race course where he can quit are. He's more interested in knowing how he can be nourished along the way and helped along the way and keep his eyes focused on what God's calling him to. So even in this passage, Jesus still doesn't tell us where the exits are, does he? What's he interested in? He's far more interested in what God's design is. What his will is. And how we can live in conformity with that will. Not how we can destroy it. And yet, 
And yet, we don't always live in conformity to his good design, do we? The intent, what we're supposed to be, it's not always met. In the same way that Christians don't always show the love and the joy and the, and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the self-control that the Spirit in us is supposed to be showing. Christian marriages don't always reflect the beauty and the unity that God intended them to. In fact, as many of, of you raised your hands earlier, it's clear. 2,000 years into this new covenant era, divorce still happens. And the majority of us have been impacted one way or another. The destruction of marriages happens even among God's born-again, spirit-indwelt children. Why? Because, Because even here, even in the here and now, there are still sin issues in Christian marriages. Even though our sin has been dealt with at the cross, its, it's power over us has been destroyed. Sin is still here. Even with new creation hearts, we still live in the flesh. So we still have men and women, even Christian men and women, who are unfaithful to their spouses. And, and the marriage covenant has been broken and they have to pick up the pieces and figure out what to do. And we're with them as a church. There will be women who marry men thinking that they're Christians. And it turns out they are not Christians. And the man instead turns out to be an abusive monster. And fearing for her life and the life of her kids, the wife has to leave the marriage. And there will be people who come together as non-Christians. And the Lord saves the husband or he saves the wife. And the other spouse continues to live in in opposition to Christ. So now there's this world of difference between them. They don't see eye to eye on anything. From parenting to finances to to what movies to watch. What to do on Sunday mornings. Where one is totally united to Christ and the other is not. Many times these marriages end up in divorce. Drug and alcohol abuse destroys marriages. Pornography destroys marriages. Anger and bitterness and grudges destroy marriages. Sin in all of its devious forms as a way of separating what God has brought together. And what Jesus wants us to see is that we shouldn't ever try to whitewash the devastation of divorce and say it was righteous somehow. It's not a question of righteousness. Maybe given the circumstances, it was the only choice you could make. Maybe you wanted to stay married, but your spouse wanted out. The point is, divorce is always the result of sin and it is never desirable. At best, it's the lesser of two evils. So if you have ever been through divorce, I am sorry for the pain that you've suffered. I will not pretend 
to understand the complexities of what led to it. I will not pretend to understand the deep scars that you have or the sense of regret that you can't make go away. This is something we mourn over. It's not something that we debate over as if it were an issue of righteousness. That's Jesus' point here. This is the breaking of something that God has made. So church, we are to mourn with those who mourn. We mourn over divorce because it is a reminder to us that all things have not yet been made new. All things have not yet been reconciled to Christ. We mourn over the fact that sin still destroys good things that God has made. So for those of you who have, who have been affected by divorce, there are two things that, that I, I want to share with you that you can take away from what Christ has taught us. Here's the first. No matter what happened, no matter what happened, you should feel no sense of moral superiority. No, no sense of self-righteousness or pride in what led to your divorce. There is never cause for that in the heart of the Christian. We've been saved by grace, haven't we? Your standing before God is not based on your merit or your purity or your commitment in your old marriage. You are not somehow closer to God because you believe you are more righteous than your ex. Your standing before God is based on Christ's righteousness alone. So that mercy that you've been shown should lead you to show mercy. It should lead you to forgiveness, regardless of how deeply you've been hurt. Secondly, know this. You've been saved by grace. You have been saved by grace. That means that you have been forgiven by God. Some of you are filled with regret because when you look back at what took place and you think about it, you think, if I had done it another way, that might not have happened. Divorce was unnecessary. Two-thirds of divorces are that way, according to some statistics. Somebody, somewhere. There's evidence that if that couple had just waited a little longer, if they had gone to counseling, or if they had sought help or accountability, they could have gotten through it. So some of us are in that category. You realize you tore asunder what God had brought together. Some of you were the perpetrators of your divorce. You were the adulterer. Or you were the one who gave up. Or you were the one who wanted out. And when you take the time to dwell on what happened, you're sometimes consumed with guilt. You can't shake it. It's just this deep feeling of guilt that never goes away. And so you just try not to think about it at all. But listen, if you have repented and if you have embraced Jesus Christ's work on your behalf, then you have been washed you have been sanctified. You have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Not because you did the right paperwork, but because of what Christ did for you. 
if you've already remarried, and I know many of you are in this situation, you are now one flesh with your new spouse. Let this marriage be for God's glory. Friends, in Christ, you've been forgiven for whatever took place. So you're not an adulterer. You are a new creation. You're not a divorcee. You are a new creation. If you think you are somehow a second-class Christian because your marriage fell apart, you are no less saved by Christ's work than anybody else. You are unified with Christ. You are one with Christ. And so you don't carry with you a big red letter D on your chest. You carry with you the seal of God's never failing, always faithful covenant love for you. You have the Spirit. And with the power of the Spirit, you have been freed to live in joyful obedience to God. Amen? Amen. Church, this is the truth that responds to the difficulty. Okay? I think one of the difficult things for us is that we, and I've done it, so I can say it's difficult because I've been caught up there. I'm thinking, all right, what are the four different views of when is divorce justified, when is it not justified? And Jesus is saying, divorce sucks. It's bad. It's the breaking of something good that God has made. And so we mourn it. And we walk alongside those who are with us in Christ together. And we encourage them. And we pray for them. And we work with them. And we do everything we can to defend the marriages that they have now. We are one body in Christ. All equal before the foot of the cross. Let's pray.